Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Martin Torgoff is an acclaimed American journalist, author, documentary filmmaker, and writer, director, and producer of television. He's worked extensively in the fields of music and American popular culture. He's best known for his book, Can't Find My Way Home, America in the Great Stoned Age, 1945-2000, a narrative cultural history of illicit drugs. Now, Martin Torgoff's latest book is called Bop Apocalypse, Jazz, Race, The Beats, and Drugs, whereas Can't Find My Way Home told the story of how illicit drugs traveled from the underground to the mainstream. Torgoff's new book, Bop Apocalypse, tells the story of the underground and how the use of drugs entered the DNA of American culture in the first place. The narrative connects the birth of jazz in New Orleans, the first drug laws, Louis Armstrong, Harry Anslinger, and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Swing, Lester Young, the Savoy Ballroom, Charlie Parker, the birth of bebop, and the rise of of the beat generation. And this book also closely examines the template of racism in the formulation of American drug laws, policy, and enforcement, as well as the attitudes and policies regarding addiction. Kirkus called the book a comprehensive and compassionate account of the intersections of jazz, race, and drugs in 20th century America. I began my interview with Martin Torgoff by asking what inspired him to write Bop Apocalypse and also to compare the themes of Bop Apocalypse with his very well-known book from 2004, Can't Find My Way Home. Well... This book is kind of the prequel to the last one. Um, when I published Can't Find My Way Home, um, I knew that I needed to go back and at least deal with the early part of the story of how drugs entered uh, the DNA of American culture uh, to begin with. Can't Find My Way Home was largely the story of how it went from the underground to the mainstream, how it went from something that very few people did in these little subcultural enclaves, really, into something that, you know, tens, millions, 20 million, 30 million, 40 million Americans eventually, like, you know, 40% of the population at some point um, had experienced some form of an illicit substance by the time I was beginning that book, which was the early 90s, um, is when I started researching it. It was published in 04. And at that time, I did an incredible amount of research into the genesis of it all. Um, and it was fascinating. There is a, a chapter in Can't Find My Way Home called Bop Apocalypse, which contains the kernel of what became this book. Um, I always felt like, boy, I just scratched the surface of that. You know, the story of uh, the early period of the 20th century and jazz and how these writers um, were so influenced by the jazz artists and the role that 
uh, marijuana began to play in the overall kind of coalescing of an underground voice and sensibility and alternative set of values, really. Um, it was just fascinating to me, and I had always wanted to go back and flesh that kernel out into a full-scale book. And this, at long last, is that book. Mm. Where does where does the title come from, Bop Apocalypse? For those who may not be familiar with with this, those two words. Okay, it is taken from Allen Ginsberg's famous slash notorious poem Howl, which he wrote in 1955. It comes from the last part of the poem, Holy the Bop Apocalypse, and um, that was his image really for the era that he had come up in, which was the period of the early 1940s until he wrote the poem in 1955. It was his way of, you know, expressing the underground zeitgeist really of the era. Um, And uh, I just felt like it made a great title for the book. It also happens to be one of the best tongue twisters you'll ever encounter. (laughs) I dare someone to try to say it ten times fast. (laughs) Right, right. So it's it's fascinating to read this, Martin. Why was pot made illegal? I mean, slowly after how many decades, you know, it it has become slowly but surely legalized in more and more states and amongst most, dare I say, sane people, many of us think it's it's much less harmful than than alcohol people don't get into fights and kill each other and get into car accidents and kill ourselves when we smoke pot it's it's a kind of a it's a peace loving kind of vibe when when you take marijuana you know for for a lot of people why did it become so demonized and made made illegal and uh, where did this all come from well the whole regime of uh drug prohibition um, comes from uh, a kind of uh, racial fear, uh, fear of the other. Um, you know, it's, it's very interesting. This story is, is, has a parallel narrative. On the one hand, um, it's about how the use of marijuana kind of grows, really, in this underground um, but it's also the story of the war on drugs and, you know, the enforcement of that and the culture war over drugs. It all happens simultaneously. Um, so marijuana comes to the streets of New Orleans around 1910, just as jazz is beginning to coalesce. Um, so it kind, of, they, it kind of happened together in terms of how the use of it ingrained itself into the lifestyles of some of the jazz musicians and, um, you know, like the Storyville district in New Orleans. At the same time, the laws were being passed against it. The first one was the Harrison Narcotic Act of 1914. Um, But around 1930, this man, Harry Anslinger, took over the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was brand new. Um, It had just been put into place. And um, before that, the Treasury Department um, would kind of oversee issues having to do with narcotics. 
From the very beginning, um, if you go back and look at uh, the congressional testimony um, that made um, narcotics illegal in 1914, these, uh, there was uh, hysteria over what they were calling cocaine niggers. Mm. The whole idea that a black man would take cocaine and lose his mind and go berserk and become violent. It was reported widely. It was even in the New York Times. It had nothing to do with reality. Mm. And from the very beginning, there was a disconnect between reality in terms of like what actually was going on in the lives of people who use drugs and how it was perceived by the authorities and the sensationalizing of it in the media so when marijuana started growing you know it kind of like followed the music up the river after storyville was closed in 1917 it was closed down for vice um, these musicians had to leave town because a lot of these clubs where they made their livings were shuttered. So it went, they went up the river to sh- on these boats, these wonderful river liners, river boats, all the way up to Chicago, and the, the weed followed them. So, you know, in the 20s, um, Louis Armstrong is, you know, the great... Uh, jazz artist who rev- really revolutionized the music and, you know, made it a soloist's art form. And he was a prodigious user of marijuana, used it, you know, pretty much every day of his life. <laughs> and um, so it, it, it began to kind of grow within this kind of jazz underground. And then it comes east to Harlem, in the early 1930s, and it goes west to Los Angeles, and then, of course, it goes south to Kansas City. And all of these places began to have really vibrant, rich jazz scenes. And one of the things that happened in the culture of jazz is a true, authentic um, exchange Um, between white and black in a way that was just not really going on in other parts of American society. I mean, if you look at, you know, the Savoy Ballroom uh, in Harlem in the 1930s, this is even before marijuana was made illegal in 1937, what you see is a place where white kids and black kids could actually get to know each other and dance with each other, um, it just wasn't happening Hmm. anywhere else in America. I mean, that was still Jim Crow America. And what was happening in Harlem and this viper culture, you know, all these hipsters, these hepcats, these kids who would go to the Savoy Ballroom and dance, they called it the track (laughs) <laughs> and th- so there was big band jazz, and there were whites and blacks, and there was reefer. So it was there at the kind of nexus of what became a multicultural and interracial um, experience in America. And that, I believe, is what made it 
kind of endure and grow. And that was what Harry Anslinger was really trying to stop with the uh, marijuana law of 1937. I mean, if you look at the campaign, uh, you know, the famous reefer madness marijuana assassin of youth hysteria Uh, campaign of the 1930s, what you see is the government putting across three signature images of the marijuana smoker. One is an axe murderer. You know, it was like, you know, if you smoke the weed, you'll become a maniac and, you know, kill your family with an axe. Uh, The second one was a schoolyard pusher. You know, this horribly evil drug pusher who was going to show up at the schoolyards. You know, hey, kid, you want to buy some reefer? That was the second one. But the third one was the Negro jazz musician was held up as the, you know, this is really what we have to fear. And at the bottom, at the basis of that racial fear, was the fear of interracial sex. It was the idea that, you know, white girls would go to these places and smoke pot and come under the sway of these charismatic, you know, black jazz musicians and basically have sex with them. Because that was the ultimate taboo. And so, so there is, in essence, the reason for the, making marijuana illegal. And, of course, what happened was it just the underground grew and the opposite happened. I mean, it just, you know, it was, it was something that was, there was a real um, desire to experience African-American culture and this wonderful music that was coming out of it. And, you know, all throughout the South, um, you know, the music was uh, condemned um, at the same time that, um, you know, the marijuana was made illegal. So that, in essence, created what became the culture war over marijuana in America. And, of course, it would change, you know, to the beatniks in the 50s and the hippies in the 60s. And um, so there was a whole paradigm, there was a whole template put in place to demonize the people who used marijuana. From the very beginning. When did when did heroin come come into the scene, into the jazz scene, a, more of a destructive, destructive drug, which unfortunately uh, also became a part of the jazz scene for a lot of musicians. Some of these uh, figures uh, about the number of jazz musicians using the harder stuff is pretty shocking. Yeah, um, it's a very different story. Um, you know, heroin was... Um, uh, narcotics were around, um, you know, during the 20s. Uh, both cocaine at, and heroin, both? Well, well, both cocaine and heroin were around, absolutely. Um, and in the 20s, uh, after the Harrison Narcotic Act, the average uh, heroin user, uh, let's say opium, opiate, narcotic user, was, um, you know, like... Um, a middle-class person, a middle-class woman who had been addicted as per doctor's prescriptions. Um, You know, they were 
written out pretty freely. I mean, it's not dissimilar to what's gone on today. With the opioid crisis, right? Exactly, exactly. So what happened was when it was made illegal, um, all these people had no place to go to get their drugs. So that was the beginning of the underground trade in narcotics. Um, Heroin powder actually also becomes available right around you know the, the early part of the century it what it hadn't really grown until um the 1930s hmm. uh it was very very um limited and that was when people began to understand how to use uh the needle and administer it intravenously which of course changed the whole game um, it made it a lot more potent. It made it a lot easier to get addicted to. Um, so, nineteen mid nineteen thirties, nineteen thirty six, nineteen thirty seven, um, it arrives in Kansas City. Kansas City uh, was a, a kind of a wide open uh, city. Um, it was run by this corrupt brawling demagogue by the name of Tom Pendergast, and he was in league with the Sicilian Mafia. So Kansas City became like a hub of narcotics, and it was around um, the jazz scene there. Um, uh, right, Right around that time, people also started learning how to use Benzedrine inhalers, uh-huh. So speed kind of enters the picture, too. But this kid who lives, you know, just blocks away from this area where all these jazz clubs are, Charlie Parker, the teenage Charlie Parker, you know, some of us are just naturally, for whatever reason, predisposed much more so to addiction than others. And he was one of them. Um, he just had a thing, you know, he had a... Uh, a fascination uh, for drugs of any kind, and um, by the you know the time he was sixteen, seventeen years old, he was a heroin addict mm. in Kansas City before he left Kansas City, you know, to to come to New York and establish himself as you know one of the great jazz musicians of the era. So <clears throat> in the 1944-45, you know, in this little club in Harlem called Minton's in the basement of uh, the Cecil Hotel, um, there's this little group of musicians, just brilliant um, innovators, um, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Kenny Clark on drums, Thelonious Monk. Um, And these are the guys who begin to invent what becomes known as bebop, what becomes known as modern jazz. And as it's happening, um, a lot of these young musicians are coming under the sway of Charlie Parker, whose nickname, of course, was Bird, who happened to be, at the same time that he was a kind of um, natural addict, a natural musical genius. I mean, there's no other way to put it. He had an ability. He became the architect 
of the music. I mean, he he was just unlike anybody else. And a lot of these musicians, like, you know, the teenage Miles Davis, they knew about his lifestyle, and they would just be completely dumbfounded by what he would do on a stage. Um, because they knew, they knew that he was shooting dope and drinking and, you know, smoking reefer and everything. So, you know, they made a very um, erroneous uh, assumption. Um, uh, you know, you look back and you say, God, how naive they really were. Right, right. But the, the fact of the matter is that the use of heroin, you know, shooting heroin, it was new. It was a new thing, and they had no idea what they were getting used to, what, getting into. They really didn't know. This, like, little circle, this little avant-garde circle. And so these, these musicians would look at Bird, and they would think, well, you know, maybe if I live like Bird, I'll be able to play like Bird. And so they began picking it up. And then he goes out to um, California strung out. He has a breakdown out there that becomes kind of legendary. And he comes back bigger than ever, better than ever, and but still a drug addict. And, um, you know, that's when it really started to spread. So by 1950, um, you have a really unprecedented situation where, you know, a majority of the you know the the brightest young most brilliant jazz musicians of the era are all strung out on dope it's together so, so tragic god so how on earth would they create this classic american music while they were strung out on dope which they did um and that's partly the story that i tell in this book um and it's fascinating you know i mean they were all different people, and they all had different outcomes. You know, Charlie Parker dies young at 33, but not before becoming this icon to this musical generation. Billie Holiday gets busted numerous times. Um, Miles Davis kicks heroin in this kind of mythic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, uh, story. Um, John Coltrane, he has a with when he kicks heroin he has a spiritual awakening that changes the whole direction of jazz and then there were those like uh Jackie McLean another great saxophonist they just couldn't get clean no matter how hard they tried no matter what they tried to do and he would not be able to get off heroin until you know the early methadone program i mean this doctor uh Marie Nicewander was really the first to develop the idea that, well, maybe you could, we could use another narcotic to kind of palliate the withdrawal from heroin, and at least so these people could have a normal life. You know, they wouldn't have to go out and steal and rob and, you know, spend their lives nodding out on rooftops and stuff if we give them this this substitute, this narcotic substitute. So it's a whole patchwork quilt of stories. But 
you have to remember that while that was happening, um, and there were those who would not become, you know, you, you have, I have to say that there were plenty of great jazz musicians who were horrified by the idea of, you know, narcotics. Name some. Louis Armstrong yeah, name was some, one. Name some, some other ones. Charles Mingus was ant, pretty anti-drug, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he was. He was. He was never a drug addict. Dizzy Gillespie, another one, and, you know, who is like Bird's musical brother, uh, you know, and horrified by heroin. Um, but while this was going on, while this drama was engulfing, the drama of addiction was engulfing these musicians... At the same time, the mafia was organizing the global trade in heroin, right at the same time. Just as Byrd came back to Harlem in 1947, that was the first heroin summer in Harlem. I mean, and they made a decision, a marketing decision, to put the drugs in Harlem because, you know, they... They knew that the cops would not allow it anyplace else. I mean, there was always police complicity in uh, the narcotics trade. And at the same time, um, you know, if you remember that great scene in The Godfather, um, you know, where the heads of the families are going to make their peace. You know, the whole conflict between the families was when, you know, and the 40s when, you know, were they going to get into the new thing, heroin or not? Oh, and yeah. so they're sitting around the table, and, you know, one of the bosses says, you know, let them lose their souls. Who cares if they lose their souls? They're animals anyway. And that was true. Mm. You know, that was, that, was a tr- that was a truism mm. about the attitude. The, um, you know, they were going to market their product in black inner-city neighborhoods, and as a result, the composite, the addict identity changed from what had been this kind of middle-class person, white, um, who, um, you know, had become a narcotics addict, you know, through doctor's prescriptions, to a young black male, where, and it would stay that way for the next 25 years. Tell us about the connection and the, the influence that, that jazz and, the, and these substances, uh, pod and, and harder stuff, had on the great beat writers like Allen Ginsberg and, and Jack Kerouac and, and William Burroughs. They were, they were really, really enamored with, with jazz, and they were enamored with a lot of mind-altering substances, weren't they? <laughs> well, they were, again, um, you know, fascinated. When they all were getting to know each other um, in the mid, you know, the period around 43, 44. Well, I'll tell you one story. I mean, Jack Kerouac was a 21-year-old Columbia student um, just becoming really immersed in jazz. One night, um, he goes down to the village. Um, One of his friends um, worked in a record store down there, and he meets Lester Young, the great saxophonist. The king of cool. Was, the king the of cool. The king of cool, the yeah. man who invented cool. Yeah, literally. And, you yeah. Know, and a prodigious user of marijuana. Again, another one who ha- had no interest in narcotics. So 
Prez, as Billie Holiday called him, Prez, the president of the tenors, he takes Kerouac up to Minton's. They share a cab together, and he gives Kerouac his first marijuana. And it changed his life, you know. It changed his life. I mean, it changed my life, too, you know, when I smoked it as a teenager in the 1960s. Yeah, but, me too. <laughs> so, so um, you know, this little circle, Allen Ginsberg, 19 years old, um, Kerouac, 21, Burroughs, who was older, he was like an old man in his 30s, like 19, he was about 30 at this point. They became fascinated by all the all the different drugs, um, and they they started um, really trying to learn about them. I mean, it wasn't just they wanted to get high; they wanted to learn about them. They wanted to, you know, understand where they came from, um, you know, where they. Um, you know, it's very interesting, this guy Mez Mesro, who was a friend of Louis Armstrong's, a, a jazz clarinetist, he had come to uh, New York, and, and by 1930, he had become like the most well-known uh, marijuana dealer in Harlem. And his, uh, his ware was called the Mighty Mez. It was this uh, really the best pot that had ever hit the streets of Harlem. And he loved the culture up there. He loved jazz. He, you know, he believed that this was like really a vital culture coming to life up there. But um, Mesro wrote a book called Really the Blues. And it was the first book to kind of, it was his memoir, but it also looked at the whole jazz culture and the origins of marijuana in it and nothing like it has ever been published and um the book came out like like you know 45 46 Ginsburg read it and it was like an epiphany to him mm. it was like oh so that's where it came from and he he began to identify himself with that movement with that culture of people, as did Kerouac. Burroughs immediately uh, went to narcotics. Um, he was less influenced by jazz than the other two, in that the other two really, um, from the get-go, began to be interested in how how I can write like the jazz musicians blow. Is it possible? Is it possible, in other words, to improvise like that, to be in completely in the moment and in the feeling? And so their interest in it kind of walked hand in hand with that. So that their breakthrough works, in the case of Gins, uh, Ginsburg writing the poem How, in the case of Kerouac, you know, writing the great novel On the Road, um, they came about directly as a result of incorporating this jazz aesthetic into their writing as well as incorporating, incorporating the substances. Um, marijuana, benzedrine, they experimented with all of them. Burroughs, um, he got his major... Uh, 
theme um, from his heroin addiction. Um, his the book that he published in 1953, Junkie, nothing mm-hmm. like it had ever been published before, and. What he took from it, from jazz at least, was he took the language of the hipster. Um, more, he was more interested in incorporating that than the kind of, um, you know, although he, Burroughs is a kind of unique story. I mean, he, he definitely um, was a key figure in the, in the beat generation. Um, it's, it's extraordinary, really, um, you know that Burroughs, his his great novel *Naked Lunch* is notorious novel. Yes, um, it, it just could never have been written without his heroin habit. Um, you know that the, the heroin gave him uh, the addiction to heroin gave him a metaphor through which to really look at the whole world, his whole world view was built on his experience as an addict. It's really extraordinary. And those books had a huge impact. Those works, How on the Road and Naked Lunch, had a huge impact on the 60s generation. Oh, man. Dylan, you know, Pandy Smith, I mean, it's, wow, yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, big time, <laughs> yeah. big time, big time. Through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, uh, just they cast a long shadow. Um, the poet Gregory Corso would always say, you know, the hippies acted out what the beats were writing about. And he was, he was right. He was absolutely right. They did. Martin, what's your next project? Do you know what you're going to be doing next? Another book or a film project? I, you know, or I've, always, I've always gone back and forth between writing books and making television. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think I'll probably um, make some television. I mean, I have a few projects that I'm working on, I, but I, I will write more books. I can't imagine myself, you know, not writing another book. I'm 64. So I like to think that, you know, I have a chunk of time ahead of me to write some more books if I, if I stay healthy and lucid. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'll probably, you know, like make some television. I mean, I've been very fortunate um, when my last book came out, um, Can't Find My Way Home, I was able to turn it into um, a multi-part television series for, it was a co-production of VH1 and the Sundance Channel called the drug years right 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 and um you know maybe at some point i'll be able to do something that something like that with bop apocalypse cautionary cautionary tale drugs can be so liberating and then the wrong drug and the wrong time um can just tip tip the stick scales and lead to complete destruction and it's just so hard for for people yes. to know especially when you're young where where that uh where that is, I'm someone... Yeah, that's the danger. That's the danger. I, you don't know until you know. Yeah, and I have a, thank God, a, you know, I'm about your age and sounds like a, a somewhat similar background. And I look back at a couple of nights in my life and it's just like, boy, I don't, I don't know how I got through that. I was a real stupid person and wasn't realizing what I was doing, you know, and... Yeah. Right, a lot of us were lucky. Yeah. We're lucky that way. And a lot of us went down. I know, I know, oh, I know. And, and it seems that every generation now 
um, is destined to, you know, go through its own kind of passage with this. Yeah. So my belief is that the best thing we can possibly do is tell the truth about it all. And that's really what my work is about. You know, I mean, I, 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 I hope that people, I don't promote the use of drugs, um, but on, on the other hand, I don't condemn it. I accept that it's a reality that exists. I don't make moral judgments about it. They're, they're not good. They're not evil. They just are. And the best thing we can possibly do is learn as much as we can about them and make as informed and intelligent judgments as possible about what we do. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with author Martin Torgoff about his new book, Bop Apocalypse, Jazz, Race, the Beats, and Drugs. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.